Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Mentors for Military Podcast. Glad you uh, we were able to hook up and everything, and you were able to come on and join us. Yeah, this is great. I love what you guys are doing. I think it's it's, it's amazing. I've been following for a little bit. Um, good product as well, not not just a, a good movement, but also a well crafted product. So I yeah. appreciate that. Appreciate that, man. That's great feedback. I love actually hearing from some of the people who listen to us because they give us great insights into how we can improve upon the show, get different guests. And a lot of our guests actually come through either myself or through just direct friends and connections yeah. that we have. And those seem to be better. So that's a, it's a beautiful movement. Happy to do anything I can. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Let's get back to your beginning of your military career. I guess you were a guy out in Iowa. Is that where you originally started off at? Is yeah, before the army, so I grew up in Texas. Texas, okay. Uh, grew up in the in the DFW area of Texas. Uh, went to college, all that stuff, and then decided that the army was the best place for me. I understand that you know, in looking back at your history and everything, that you had a grandfather who was in World War II, two uncles in Vietnam, and um, you know, it was really a friend named Mike Wilson that got this thing whole kind of kicked off. I guess it was. Yeah, good for you. Good, good, uh, good diving. So a, a good buddy of mine named Mike Wilson. Joined the Army while I was in grad school. I went to grad school before I joined the Army. He was already out of the Army. He got blown up while he was deployed in Afghanistan, way before I was in the Army. We're talking, oh, seven, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And I met him when he was recovering in the Austin area because that's where the burn unit is, and he was having a bunch of surgeries. He started going to community college there and met a friend of mine. So they became roommates. And I met this individual, and he was just a stud. And I- I've always wanted to be in the military. 9-11 happened when I was in 10th grade. But Mike, after being injured, was just so positive about this whole experience, um, and we became great friends, and he got in a car accident and passed away, and around that time, I was like, well, I met a Green Beret, things were kind of starting to elevate, and I, I was very clear to me that this is the path that I was going to have to go, and I, I became really good friends with his family, and I was like, hey, Joan, which is his mom, said, hey, listen, um, I just want to let you know that Mike's a big part of me joining the Army, um, so I appreciate all the leadership that you guys have given him. And kind of a I'll take the torch sort of thing. Um, and she was blown away by it. She's an amazing woman. She was actually at my wedding about a month ago. She flew in from Iowa. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate that. 
does she offer any type of words of wisdom or anything like that? You know, maybe something that Mike has passed on. She was very excited, very emotional as well. I yeah. think that Mike didn't want to leave the army when he left the army. And this was, like I said, before I even knew him, um, but he was really into being in the, in the military and really into being in the army. And so when he left, she was just excited to still have him because he, he took a significant injury. Their Humvee was hit by an IED. Mm. A couple people, a couple people passed away in the vehicle he survived, but it was it was a traumatic event. So she was just lucky to have him. Mm-hmm. He died traumatically in a random car accident in San Antonio, Texas, during oh the God. middle of the day. No alcohol on either, either parties. It just happened to be a, a fatal traffic accident. And so during the journey of us bringing his stuff to her in Iowa and that whole process, she was just clear with us that like, hey, I'm just lucky to, that I had a couple extra years with him, to, to be honest with you guys. So it's it's awesome that you all have all connected. Everybody was like such good people and such good friends. And she said, I'm just so proud that you're going to be in the military now and I still have another connection because Mike never wanted to leave. Yeah. What was his MOS? Was he the Green Beret or is it different? No, he was, okay. he was an 11 Bravo, so he was okay. an infantryman. You know, you were going on a graduate school and stuff. What what were you going for uh, for your graduate program for? What degree? So I got my master's degree in criminology. When criminology, I, okay. Yeah. So let's see. High school, 9-11 happens. I'm in 10th grade. I'm like, okay, I, I got to join the Army. Some of my friends that are in 12th grade are immediately joining the Army. And then for me, it was never a question of what which branch to join. You sure. know, two uncles, a grandfather, all in the Army. I grew up idolizing these people. So it was very clear that if I was ever going to join the military, it was going to be the Army. And as soon as I got up to a point where I was graduating high school, mom was like, no, you need to go to college, dude. That's like, that's first, like, just make it clear. And so I struggled with that for a little bit. And inevitably, it was the right decision. She was 100% correct for me at the time. So I went to college for criminal justice, because that's like the coolest thing I could think of. I was still thinking very much not be a college student, but get this over with so I can go be in the military. Sure, sure. And so criminal justice was a good fit. And I did well at it, uh, well enough that they offered me a scholarship to attend for grad school. Oh, nice. So, So that's kind of what what happened. And during that time period, I met a few Green Berets, and I met Mike, and during finishing up my graduate program, I was like, I, I got to go join the Army now. Like, I, I've messed around too long. It's game time. So when you walked down and met the recruiter, you you specifically said, hey, I want the 18 X-ray program you already knew going in, or was it something, you know, that they started to gearing you towards a pipeline of maybe Ranger contract, or how did that all go down? Yeah, so these guys, they were really wanting to push Ranger contracts at the time. Yeah, so I would think of so. A, yeah. yeah, that time period was like super ranger heavy, and it's ebbs and flows, as we all know, in the military. Mm-hmm. So what's what's more available and what's less available? So it was like ranger, 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 ranger. And I'm like, that's ah, not really what I want to do. Uh, but I had a friend of mine that was pretty deep in the Green Berets, and he's like, dude, honestly, you could probably just show up with an 11 Bravo contract and get an 18 X-ray at basic training if you're hungry enough. Mm-hmm. happens all the time. It's just that the people that want to do it. So I actually signed a Ranger contract. Oh, did that's like, you? Exa- that's exactly how it went down. I was like, I've got to just pull the trigger. Because I'd gone through college, because I'd gone through grad school, I was tired of wasting time, and yeah. I just wanted to start like immediate gratification. So I reached around. I went to three different recruiters to try to get an 18X. I couldn't get one at the time. I could have waited like eight months and got one. Um but but did you go all? Just, the way, I'm sorry. Did you go all the way to the MEPS and everything, or was it just the recruiters? Because I mean, the recruiters. It, it was just the recruiters. Okay. So, as an uninformed client, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's I got where you. I landed. <laughs> I get this question all the time because I, I hear guys, you know, they'll say something like, you know, my 
<clears throat> my recruiter is saying this or my recruiter is saying that. And my advice typically when I get those messages is, listen, you've got to go talk to the guidance counselor down at the MEPS until you take the physical, until you yeah. take the uh, ASVAB test, until you sit down with a guidance counselor, you haven't really made it far enough to figure out what you're going to do in your military career. Because at that point, they're going to match all those things up and tell you, one, what the needs of the Army is at that point. And then secondly, you know, try to figure out what it is that you want to try to do. So uh, it was interesting at that point that you were kind of shopping around the recruiters until one of them finally said, yeah, man, I can I can hook you up with that. Which, of course, if you'd have walked into me and said that you wanted to go Ranger contract, I'd have signed you up right then. It would have been like, yeah, man, we can we can make that. That's usually one of those things, unless Ranger Regiment is kind of closing in on its slots, you know, and it, it, it is cyclical. Um, then your chances are pretty good if you meet all the other requirements that you're going to get a ranger contract. Absolutely. Now, it doesn't mean anything. It just means you get a foot in the door, right? Because you, you still yep. got to go prove yourself. And I know that, you know, many times uh, Ranger Regiment and um, some of the other, you know, soft, you know, they come around during basic training and they ask questions or they, you know, they do a presentation and, and they end up picking up additional recruits. They do this also in airborne school. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that a lot of guys that go for airborne school with a Ranger contract um, are not always the guys that end up making it through and getting to the regiment. Sometimes it's it's the guys who had an airborne contract or got picked up for airborne because they were a holdover or something there at Fort Benning, and then they end up getting you know interviewed by a Ranger Regiment uh, about coming over and stuff and going through the pipeline, and they end up going through it and making it over the guys who actually had the Ranger contract. Absolutely. I think that the, the contract's the easiest portion of the entire process. Yes, exactly. You can get you, sometimes for some people, it can, it can be a struggle depending on what your qualifications are, but you've got the piece of paper in your hand. So it's really, it's, it's a choose your own adventure right. book that you're reading. Now you've got to go perform in order to do it. And there's some guys that won't have the contract that'll 1000% do better because they just fell in there and they're hungry for it. And it aligns with who they are as a person. I absolutely saw that in basic training. Guys were getting ranger contracts and great marine contracts. At basic training. When I showed up to my first team, there was a guy that was more senior than me that was an 11 Bravo that picked it up. He picked up his Green Beret contract and basic training. He didn't even wasn't even on his radar to be yeah. a Green Beret. And he was the stud on our team. He was crushing it. He was like number one at everything we did. It was very clear to me like this guy would be the outlier. <laughs> if he was not a Green Beret, yeah. he should be a Green Beret. So it happens. It's a very common situation. Yeah. So in, let me ask you this. When you were uh, going through basic training, um, I know in the very beginning and stuff, you know, when they see guys that had an 18 x-ray contract or guys who, you know, were talking like they wanted to go through the pipeline, um, they used to give him a hard time. Uh, the drill sergeants did. So I was curious to know, you know, once you said, yeah, this is the direction I want to go, did you make that vocal? And was there a change in demeanor and in, in how the pipeline then started? Yeah, absolutely. So in basic training, I had one specific drill sergeant was like, hey, Zach, you should have been a ranger. You just messed up this entire thing. You like really messed this up. That was, yeah. like a, bad, that was a bad career decision for you, period. And I was like, okay, thanks, drill sergeant. Uh, I'm going to continue down this path. I appreciate your your input. And then there was about three other guys that were like 1,000%. Like, I think this is a really good pick here. But here's the thing about these basic training like the iterations. Some of the courses that they have or some of the classes are all 18 x-rays. Yeah. So they, they typically do that. And so for me, I didn't have – I had four 18 x-rays in my basic training. And about 70% of it was National Guard infantry. And the other you know, 28% were 11 Bravo infantrymen. So it was very different. It was kind of strange. When I went through selection, I started meeting a lot of actual 18 X-ray guys. When I got to Fort Bragg, it was very clear to me that most of the people went through basic training 
with all x-rays. It's very common. Mm -hmm. They kind of hold you and send you together. And then now knowing a lot of drill sergeants, they love it when that happens because in general, the guys are a little bit older, they can kind of push them a little bit more. Uh, when they've got 98% 18 x-rays, it's like an entire different culture in the classroom. Yeah, that's I didn't have that, but I yeah. didn't have that, but I think it kept me hungrier, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and then it was the only advantage I see is that if these guys continue to pass through, you've started your peer group a little bit earlier than everybody else. Yeah, I didn't even know that that was occurring, that they were now putting them. I mean, it makes sense, but yet... Um, I don't know. There's something to be said for you to be going as well through the pipeline like you're talking about and going through your OSIT and then airborne school. And you're not knowing whether you're going to make it. You're not with anybody that's like you. It's all a little bit different. And like you said, you have to push yourself and motiv motivate yourself in a very different way that when you're with guys who are actually going through the same exact thing as you, you tend to lean on one another but you're not there by yourself. And and I know that, you know, SFAS, and we'll get in that in just a minute, is, is a lot about teamwork. But, you know, the, the whole idea here, too, is that how much can you push yourself? What stress level can you put on yourself to get yourself to the next point and stuff? And so it's a lot of there's a lot of uh, introspective look here, you know, and making sure are you ready for what you're you're signed up for? Yeah, it was it was actually easier for me to stay motivated when I got to Fort Bragg, when I was surrounded by guys that yeah. were interested in pushing themselves a little bit further. I think that I was pushed into a leadership position in basic training day one. I was in charge of our entire basic training as like the platoon guard. They basically looked at a piece of paper and they're like, who's the guy with the master's degree? And I was like, I don't know. Who's that idiot? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then, and because of that, I, I stayed a little bit on edge, um, probably in a good, for a good reason. I, I think that the, the leadership position in general in the military is like something that you don't seek out, but when you get it and you look back, you're like, wow, that, that really helped my career development and that put me in the right mindset. But when it changed for me is when I got to Fort Bragg and I was around guys who I thought were way better candidates than me, like guys that were crushing it. You, you get around these professional athletes and D1 athletes and guys that were from like Wall Street, Ivy League colleges, it's just an incredible mix of individuals. And that's when I was like, shit, I, I got to get my stuff together. Like, I have got to focus on all of this. Yeah. So that's when it, that's when I really drove it home to me that, like, I've got to pay attention and, like, crush everything we do. So, of course, you know, going through Special Forces Assessment Selection, SFAS, as it's known, I mean, a lot of the things that they try to do is infuse a lot of stress into the environment. Um, so here you are, you know, in typical guys who have not been in the – the conventional army for any period of time, you don't always get the luxury of going and serving with a unit and um, learning kind of the ropes about different uh, ways in which to be a soldier. But for you, it came during your land nav course. And so during the land nav section portion of the course and everything, I understand that uh, you forgot your rifle uh, yeah. somewhere along the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you get off the, the bus here and you start land nav and you actually, you've been doing land nav for two nights. So you've done like two, practices of land nav that are not graded to two nights before so you're in the woods for a total of probably five days and they really do that not only for you to get your bearings at night but also to, to exhaust you sure because you've been doing two overnight iterations where you're walking you know tons of miles with the 60 pounds and we get off the bus for the first night of the real one and they kind of scuff us up a little bit it sometimes just depends on the cadre he's like you know you guys di didn't get off the bus fast enough so get down do push-ups you know roll through the mud all this, all these other amazing things, and it, it in, introduced a lot of chaos at that moment. So this is this isn't like the blueprint for all land nets, but this is what our guy was into. So he introduced a lot of chaos, and then it was like, now go. And so I was like, oh shit, okay, let's go. So I get my stuff out, and I'm like plotting and like 
very focused. And like, I, I know that I've been doing decent at land nav, yeah. not like the best in the class, but I, I had a good pulse that I was going to pass it. So I took my time with it and I knew I could move pretty quick in the night, got my stuff, got it together, got my ruck back on and started moving in the direction I thought. And when you're doing this, you're, you're head down for the most part, for oh, me yeah. at least, into the compass. Oh, yeah. As, as you know. So which, I'm just Which you end down. up drifting sometimes because of that. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So you, you got like, to figure out what works for you. What worked for me was literally the compass was where I was staring the entire time. Yeah. And I'm like hours into this thing and I'm swinging my arms and I'm like really feeling it. I'm walking through this open field with a lot of down timber because they were we're downing a lot of timber to, to rejuvenate some, some, like some of the trees out there, which is a pain if you're trying to walk over mm-hmm. and I'm walking and I'm trying to, I'm figuring out that I'm moving really quick and I feel my hands and they're like swishing, like, like a power walker. You can imagine that's doing oh, yeah. a marathon. And that's when it dawns on me that my hands are empty and I have nothing in them. Oh shit. And I was like, and this is, a you know, hours in, like almost probably two and a half hours in. And I was like, I left my rifle up against the tree where I was doing all those push-ups, where I charted my. And immediately I was like, and the cadre member picked it up, and I'm done. Yeah, that that's it. If he if he picks up your rifle in your mind as a soldier, you just think that there's probably no worse infraction that you can do yeah. ever is leave your sidearm. And so I completely turn around and just run back in a panic and frenzy. I get back and I somehow stumble directly on the tree that I came from. Uh, because Which I was is crazy, kind of, you know. What do you think about? It? Because yeah. yeah, you're you're already drifting a little bit. You're trying to get to your points, and the fact that you actually went directly back in this stressful situation, you know, and and found your rifle. That's pretty amazing. And and so yeah. of course nobody cadre has not picked it up. No, they were gone. There nobody saw a, you. No yeah. one around at all. It was yeah. complete crickets, just dead night. And I just stared at it, and I was like, yes. How long did it take you to get back from the you – know, you said you were about an hour and a half, two hours in. Because now you were a little bit more motivated, and you knew you had to get there. How quickly did you get back to that situation? I think it took an hour. I think the entire the entire thing took a little over three hours, so probably half the time to get back because I knew where I was going. Yeah. Um, and then I was super motivated to move faster, which yeah. is a good – that's a good thing in land navigation. T- typically, people run out of time. So I really thought I was going to fail because I, lo- I got lost for basically three hours of my time. Um, but I ended up passing. I, I didn't, you, you could, at that time, you could get four points that first night mm-hmm. and be done. You'd be done. If you got four for four, is what they call it on the first night, you were done with land nav and you just sat out in the woods with the other guys on day two and you didn't have to participate. You got your check mark and you'd passed it. And I'll say like maybe 30% of our class did that, 40%. Clearly, I was not of those people because I spent a lot of time looking for my rifle. Right, right. Um, but I, I think I got three and three, so I got six total. You do four the first night, four the second night, and they've changed this. This, this is kind of is this is cyclical as well how the land navigation works. But at that time, if you went and got all four, you're done. Um, so that's that was like the goal for everyone, and most of us didn't get that. So you had to recock it the second day, and you see the other guy standing over there, and you're like, man. If I just wouldn't have lost my rifle. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that, that had to have sucked. Jeez, oh, man. Then I want to talk about a little bit about the, the stress side of this whole thing because I, I love one of the, the quotes that you actually uh, put out there about as humans, we gravitate towards the path of least resistance, mainly because it's easy and less stressful. And so a lot of us tend to go that way. But you started learning very early on in your career through choosing the path that you did by going to Special Forces and SFAS. You're, you're finding yourself in this stressful situation. 
How did it start teaching you to start dealing with stress later on? What were some of the things that you picked up at that point uh, about yourself, I guess? Yeah, I, I was just constantly in situations where I was trying to go the easier way. And I started figuring it out. Like I was wanting to cheat it almost. Before I joined the Army, I did CrossFit for a number of years. That's like mm. how I kept my conditioning up. And the whole premise with CrossFit is essentially do the work as, the, as efficient as you possibly can. Like get it done, but do it as efficient as you can. And so I think that inherently that was my mentality with literally everything I was doing. I was trying to be the most efficient and kind of cut corners almost. Mm. Um, and then I started thinking about that and I was like, well, that's good for that task. And that makes sense for, for what you're on right now. But holistically, you're not really getting a lot of professional growth if you're always taking the easy route so that you can complete the task. Um, and so somewhere along the special forces journey, I started pivoting that and really just leaning on some of my peer group. And I was like, Hey, if we've got a five mile ruck, let's go six. Yeah. If we're doing a 10 mile run, let's go 11. And, you know, with, with this specific group of individuals, it, it caught on like a wildfire and everybody was like, yeah, absolutely. Or if we're doing a workout on our own, well, instead of doing the five rounds, let's do the six rounds. And then it just bled into everything. <laughs> it literally bled into everything we did. I remember during the communications course, we had to do like this really robust satellite communications exercise. And before we even started, a friend of mine goes, Zach, let's do this twice. And it's like hours of painless, like just painful grinding. And I was like, you're right, we're going to do it twice because this is an important position. Like we've got to learn this not only to be better soldiers, but to be better communicators as a Green Beret. And so for my specific peer group, we kind of caught on to that entire movement of let's just make it harder, but we have to say we're going to make it harder before we start it. Or we're not going to do it halfway through. It's it's like, hey, we're about to go for a five mile run. No, it's going to be six. You can't make that decision halfway through. Yeah, but this wasn't something that you learned very early on because, of course, you arrive in ODA. You're you're fresh meat. You don't really know what you're doing, and so it takes a period of time before you start realizing your place in that in that environment. And I think in your case, you mentioned that you had a really good leader. Uh, that was in charge of you guys, uh, specifically on a mission over in a deployment over in Afghanistan. So how important was it to have that first leader that really made a positive influence on you and your career? And especially yeah. in a very stressful situation once again. Yeah, so in my our Afghanistan deployment, I was right out of the Q course. So I was a very fresh Green Beret. I was actually the I was the lowest ranking Green Beret in the entire country. Oh my God. So wow. it, it, it was very interesting for me to show up, but I kind of had, I had like, because I was a little bit older, I was also our honor grad. So I was like valedictorian for my, for my communications course. Um, these guys like thought just on paper, like, well, Zach's kind of got it together. He's got a master's degree. Mm -hmm. He's not 21 years old. He just showed up. So I think that that helped me right off the bat, kind of just leveraging some life experiences that I had as well. Granted, I wasn't 11 Bravo for a decade, but I just, I just feel like they took me a little bit more seriously. So when we get to Afghanistan, I'm still the new guy, but I, I'm not really acting like a new guy. I think that's important as well. If you can handle yourself maturely for the situation you're in, you're going to succeed. And our leader that was running our ODA was an incredible leader. And 99% of the time we had complex issues, he would say to the team, what do you guys think? Like That was his like statement. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? And he would give us guidelines for that, of course. Um, and he wouldn't always take our advice. But it really just made me think, like, he wants to know, like, what we actually think about this. Regardless if he's going to take our advice or not, which doesn't matter, he wants our input, period, because we see it differently than he does. And that's kind of the beauty of an ODA is you've got this collective group of individuals that are from this all different branch of, like, the world. 
and they've all got ideas and they can collectively discuss them. And then one person can say, I like this, this, and this, and this, let's go with it. So because this guy was, was just such an incredible leader, it made things so much easier for me. And, you know, the power of a mentor in general circumcedes the army yeah. and it circumcedes being a Green Beret. It, it's a life task that I'd never really had, to be honest with you, before professionally or personally, like my family, things like that. But as an individual, like for growth, I saw that for the first time when I showed up my team and we went straight to Afghanistan. And this guy was just the whole package of helping people grow. And that was like, wow, I need I need to do that for somebody at some point. Yeah. I want now because he's so inspiring that I want to bring this back and I want to be this exact person for someone else whenever I can. It's so unfortunate, those individuals that don't run into that leader that we're describing here, because I actually had one as well. His name was Sergeant First Class Parks, and I don't know where he is in the world today. Um, he may not still be on this earth. I have no clue. But I can tell you that the guy left, you know, a really, you know, big mark on me because he was probably, I think, my second or third NCO leader um, that I had. But he was the the single guy that for whatever reason, seemed to resonate with me and everything he said, you know, his style, his approach, very calm most of the time, um, didn't let a whole lot of things get very, you know, um, high stress or anything. And just the, the total approach, the way he took care of all of us and the whole thing, I use those same things as a pattern, not only throughout my military career and credit a lot of my leadership styles or management style to him, but even many, many years after my military service and today, I can look back and say that single person made that much of a mark. Um, you know, I don't know if the same experiences for you, you know, you've now gone through the military career, you're now out on the outside. Would you say that that one person was the one that kind of set the tone or is that the one that really set the bar? No, he set the tone. He set the tone. Absolutely. And he's still doing great things. I'm not going to mention his name, but he's yeah. a West Point guy. And now he's subsequently going to another tier and he's just constantly setting the bar. So if you can have that, and it's you, you hit it spot on. If we were fortunate enough to have those individuals, because mm -hmm. I didn't seek him out. It was just I landed upon this guy who just happened to be above us. And I think that once that happens, it's really your duty to be that person for someone else. Because we were just lucky enough to have these individuals in our lives. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to the stressful situation, one thing occurred uh, where you, you met that individual after the mission, and that's when you guys got kind of overrun. Um, had a little rough go in there. I think in one of the incidents, there was, what, about 25-plus ISIS fighters that came upon you guys. Was that more of like an ambush type of situation, or what kind of went down? Yeah, it was definitely an ambush. There was, it was a, a structured, linear ambush by ISIS on me and another a good friend of mine. We were on a security position. Um, this is 2017, right after President Trump became the president. Um, he switched up the rules of engagement in Afghanistan. And he said, you know, you guys go after ISIS. Before, we didn't have a structured plan to go after ISIS. We were going after high-value targets in the Taliban. And so he pivoted it. We went into eastern Afghanistan to do just that. There was a village that had been overrun by ISIS. So we went in to systematically clear the entire village. And... Just on one of the days, we were there for 23 days. So it was a 23-day mission, and or I was there for 23 days. And on one of the missions, I was a security detail with a friend of mine as we were on a security position. The rest of our team was kind of pushing behind us. We were there to ensure that the ISIS guys didn't come from behind us mm -hmm. because it was very clear that they were in there. We were taking sniper fire daily you know, shots where there was bad guys literally every day. And so we had to maintain security 24-7 around us. 
it just happened to be my rotation. It wasn't anything de- like deliberate. It just happened to be my time to stand on the security position as everybody else cleared through. And there was t- what they had is they had a very elaborate tunnel system that I wasn't aware of at that particular location. Um, and they started shooting at us slowly, and it just kind of ramped up, and it got worse. It got worse. Then we finally figured out they, you know, they had machine guns that they were bringing out and some heavy weapons. It was just the two of us. <laughs> so it was not a good position. Um, and then we started noticing that they were in two locations. So it was it was literally a linear ambush where they had guys in a building they were shooting, and then they had guys in the tree line. Um, so we were subsequently overran. We, we, we took out as many as we could, but we had to go back into the building. Our team came back in, um, and we were all inside the building, and, the, and then our CCT brought in the air assets that they're so good at doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, hey, there's like almost 30 guys over there. <laughs> it's, not, like, it's not enough few dudes. Um, so it was a very interesting experience for really all of us. Um, when you're looking at this from a stressful situation and having to deal with stress so much, one of the things that we hear quite often is individuals feel like that rock star high, you know, they get that, that feeling of being euphoric and and the whole thing, hypervigilant all the time. And then you make the transition out like you have, what was some of the challenges that you kind of felt or did you find that your transition was not, not as stressful and pretty easy? I definitely wouldn't say it's it's easy, and I'm actually still transitioning. I feel like um, my last day in the army was August of this year, um, so it, it's been very new to me. Now I was injured on that deployment, and my injuries took a while to manifest. So for about the last year, I've gone through a, a number of surgeries. So my pivot from the team was it actually took a while. So separation from the army was was a very lengthy one. I knew for like about the past year that I was going to be leaving the military. Period. Um, but it just took a while to manifest. So I got, mm-hmm. I was in a position because I was recovering and going to different surgeries that I had time to really think about my transition as opposed to a lot of my friends who are like, am I going to reenlist? Am I not going to reenlist? I'm not quite sure. Let me wait up until the last minute to decide, which is probably what I would have done in another three years. This was kind of like, Zach, you, you know, you're, you're kind of done here. Um, but you've got like another year, you've got to like do all these surgeries first so that we can get you out healthy. Um, so I think that, you know, give and take, right. I think I was fortunate enough in terms of a transition to have a very dedicated space to work on that when I wasn't doing surgeries and rehabilitation and things like that. So I was able to really flip the switch in my mind and say, Hey, listen, okay, the military's done. We're like literally done here, period. Now it's time to go find the next ridgeline and to go crush the next obstacle, whatever it is. How does that look? What are guys doing successfully to pivot into business, into corporate America, into anything? And so it was a long process, but I just started using the assets. You could literally just Google it. And I just started a long laundry list of what you do to be successful if you're getting out of the military or if you're looking for a job, if you're trying to find your new why. Mm. I, I had this mapped out in my room scientifically on the walls. What do I do? Well, I start a LinkedIn. I start networking. Go to these nonprofits that assist people, like all of these things that I was very fortunate enough to have some time to do, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And so I took I took advantage of that. And I wouldn't say that it was easy. It's definitely not easy. I actually think it's like one of the harder things you'll ever do because you're being stripped away from a culture that as you progress in the army, if, if say like I'm your leader in the military and you're going to be promoted soon, well, you've got to do this by then. And then that way you can get promoted. Like I'm going to tell you what to do and I'm going to give you the things to do it and you're going to go do it, period. And that's your professional development, but it's required. It's not really professional development. Sure. Because you have you have to do it. Yeah, that's true. 
in the civilian world, that's not a thing. No. If you want to go get an MBA, you've got to go get it. And it's got to be on you to show up every day. Yeah. Your time. At, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think the advantage that you may have had, though, is that they gave you that year through the rehabilitation and stuff for you to get your head right, for you to do, you know, your research, for you to build your network and all that. Some of the challenges I think uh, individuals run into is either they don't take that time um, knowing that they're not going to reenlist and knowing that they're going to be getting out because they think the transition is going to be easy. Hey, how hard can it be? I mean, look, I've already gone on, you know, multiple deployments. I've served in the military this long. No one can deal with what I've dealt with on the outside. I can certainly make that transition easy. And then they get surprised that it's not quite as easy as they thought it was going to be. Um, or you have an individual who has a medical problem that comes up that the, the military automatically just says, hey, we're, we're discharging you and we're going to do it in the next 45 days. And they have no preparation, no time to make that pivot like we were talking about earlier. And so then the stress compounds, they don't know what they're going to do, where they're going to go, and they're stuck in a situation um, that's not the the optimum situation, obviously. So um, I think that was really good for you to be able to to realize, okay, I've got to make a change here. I've got to find my new why. I've got to find my next ridge line, uh, you know, as you mentioned that, and um, start finding and focusing on your passion and purpose. Good for you for figuring that out, you know. And But I think a lot of that had to do, I, I would hope, with a lot of the conditioning and training that you went to prior to that that led you to, hey, listen, you know, in every mission, I've got to have a plan of attack. And I think this is where a lot of people fail when they're making the military transition is they don't realize that they're, they have to have a plan just like any other time that you're serving within the military. Without a doubt. You, you've got to literally put it on the walls. I mean, that's what I did. I got whiteboards and then I figured out – I even went and bought whiteboards because that's what we did in the military. So I was like yeah. this, was effective, this was effective for our team when we were building our missions and things like that. We would put it on a whiteboard. So I did the whiteboard thing in my, in my bedroom. And I was like, this isn't working. I, I need more space. So then I just would get these big sheets of paper and just tape them to my walls. And nothing was more important in my life at the time than transitioning effectively. And that's how everyone has to look at it. If you're going to be getting out of the military, there can be nothing else more important than finding what's next. Yeah. Because if you're going through the Special Forces course, if you asked Green Beret candidate Zach Hughes like a year and a half in, what's the most important thing in your life right now? It's graduating. That's the only focus that I have, period. It's, I'm very good at singularly focusing. And when you transition out, you've got to be just as hungry for that or, you're, or it's not going to work out for you. And if you're as, as hungry as you were to become a Green Beret, to be, join in the Army, to run a very fast two-mile, doesn't matter what, if you're that hungry for your transition, then these things will start to work, but you've got to earn it. Yeah. So one of the things that you did is you founded an organization called Elite Meat. So tell us about that. Yeah, so Elite Meet's a nonprofit organization that helps special operators and fighter pilots pivot to the business community from their military service. Yeah, A friend of mine from SEAL Team 2 started it in 2016 with an investment banker from New York City, and they started making meetups. He was getting out of the military. He was injured in Afghanistan as well, um, very violently and abruptly ended. Boom, you're out of the military in eight yep. weeks. Yep. It's over for you. And he was like, wow, what, what do I do? So he got onto LinkedIn and was like, hey, I need a job. He found this guy. They started doing some meetups. And these meetups started growing and growing and growing and got bigger. And finally, they slapped, uh, slapped a nonprofit on it and started getting some corporate development as well on the back end where guys were realizing that there's a, a pool of talent that, that's like easily accessible. It's very clear for Microsoft, Amazon, these companies 
private equity that are like, these guys are kind of winners. So let's, we should just jump in here and start pulling them all out to come join us because they're just as hungry for good workers as workers are for good companies. So they, I came on, let's see, when did I come on? About a year ago now, I would say I was still in the army. I, I actually went on with a skill bridge, um, internship through the military. Mm-hmm. So because I had some time and I had these surgeries, Elite Me was still very much in its infancy, and I, I believe it is to, still to this day. I said, hey, John, um, I've got the opportunity through this Care Coalition, which is like the SOCOM version of Wounded Warrior, to do an internship as long as it's remote and you have some flexibility with some of the stuff that I've got going on medically. And he was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's absolutely do that. And so I came on as director of operations and really began growing the organization, essentially, from the bottom up putting in some processes, as you can imagine, a very lean startup, nonprofit, it, there's not a lot of processes because they don't have employees. Right. It's just not, it's just not how it's set up originally. So we, we put some structure into it, started some dedicated outreach on social media, which is super important in 2019. If you don't get that, then you, just, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. And things started to fall together. Now we've got over 700 members. This week we're in New York City. We've got an, a week-long conference at the World Trade Center where we're bringing in about 40 of our guys to meet with business executives, influencers, bunch of people that are ready to hire these guys. Um, it's been an incredible ride. We've got exponential growth really in 2019 for Elite Meet, just in terms of members and on the corporate side as well. And it's been fun. Now, now so I did the SkillBridge thing, subsequently got hired as the director of operations as a paid employee, and then after that, the COO. So it's been it's been a blast, and I'll tell you why it's been a blast. It's been a blast because... I'm continuing to mentor our guys and to assist our people. And for the most part, my guys don't need mentoring. Most of these guys I look at, I'm like, wow, you're like so better at doing anything that I could do. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of laughable because yeah. we get so many studs that come out and they're like, they would land in corporate America 10,000 times better than I would to be, to be frank. That's just the truth. Um, uh, but, but where I'm passionate is, is trying to be the leader that I saw on the battlefield in Afghanistan try to mimic him in, in every way that I can because it's such a profound experience. So this gets to connect me not only with my community, but my people, but I, I found a why somewhere in that internship that I loved. And that's why it's been exciting. Yeah. I love how you brought it around full circle because that's exactly what I was getting ready to do. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned very early on is that um, that individual passed something on to you that you hope that you could pass on in the future. And in your case, you're paying it back in a different way. You know, I mean, each one of us try to find a way in which, you know, passion or our service or something like that, we can then pass on that service in a different way. Um, and it's so critical in what you guys are doing as far as networking, because one of the biggest challenges I think I found when people I've talked to uh, that got out of the service, and I know this was something that was very beneficial for me, uh, and in my first job was to create that network to, to find individuals who are already plugged in specifically in the direction which I wanted to go. They were plugged into influencers and individuals who were CEOs, COOs and C-suite executives or just, you know, executives within certain space that viewed the military in some cases, not always positive, but they, they realized that there was a skill set or something there that they could work from and mold. And if they met the right individual, they might be able to, to invest the time and money to bring that individual in at a level in which they could really grow and prosper. And for me, that's exactly what it was. It started off as a consulting gig that then worked into something in the future that led to bigger uh, things. 
Uh, but I think what you guys are creating is much the same thing. Hey, listen, we'll give you, you know, some tools. We'll give you a network. Then it's for you to then go out there and make something successful out of that. These organizations you're working with most likely already value your organization, know what you're bringing to the table. So any individual then that comes in the door through that pipeline has instant credibility at some level. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been a good model that we just stumbled into, to be honest with you. And people have been successful and we haven't gotten burned. And when I say that, I mean, all of our guys are vetted that they come in, um, not only through the special operations community or their respective branches, but through us as well. So the guys that are coming in, we're, we're putting them in a spot where they're going to be successful. Um, and it works on both ends. It's been great. Yeah. No, I think the vetting part was another thing I was just going to bring up because you almost have to, right? You've got your own credibility and, and everything that's on the line here. If you're passing on an individual that doesn't work out appropriately. Now, not everybody's going to be a hundred percent successful and you know, you can't always win per se, but the idea here is that you're trying to select the right candidate. But once again, it goes back to the individual. You're giving them everything in the toolbox to be able to help them be successful. That's all we can ask for as people, right? Is give me give me an opportunity. If I can get my foot in the door, I used to always say this, you know, I've got my my piece of paper that's out there that's trying to sell me in the marketplace called a resume. But if I can ever get an interview, if I can ever get my foot in the door, if I can ever get that handshake off to an individual, then I can make my impression I'm gonna be ready and I know I'm gonna do well. But it was always, can I get that opportunity? What I found, though, is later on in life, as you start moving up in the private sector um, into different roles, much is true as well. You have to be at the right place at the right time and with the right network in order to receive those promotions. They don't come easily. You've got to go out there and bust your ass and not only continue getting the education uh, and everything, the training and stuff that goes with it and, and absorbing yourself in the knowledge, but it takes a whole lot of luck. It takes network and it takes the right time for all those things to come together. Yeah, I think that that's, that's an interesting topic you bring up because networking in general is something that we are historically bad at yeah. in general. Just And not only as men, in my opinion, but military men in general, we're, we don't typically go somewhere and lead with, yes, I used to be a Green Beret. Right. That's never happening. And for a number of years, if you've been whatever, you've in my specific background, you've probably been lying to people about what you do mm -hmm. for a number of years. So you're terrible at networking. You're actually really bad at it. So going in and shaking someone's hand and saying, yeah, I used to do this. I led teams in Afghanistan and a bunch of other countries. We did XYZ in logistics with so much money and it was a blast and I did so good and we had no issues. Leading with conversations like that is actually a little foreign to you. Now, if you've grown up and I've seen people that have no military experience whatsoever and those conversations roll off the tongue. I just left an event here actually in Dallas at SMU where this college graduate who has an MBA was selling me on his internship and it was, he was selling it so good. And I was like, this guy got coached mm -hmm. to be able to sell this. And I've got Navy SEALs that have got MBAs from Rice, Duke, Harvard that are not nearly as good as this guy is right now about explaining themselves because there's a little bit of a culture difference. Yeah. Big we're culture a little, difference. Yeah. yeah we're, we're a little bit more reserved yeah. on kind of boasting on what we did in our service and that's another thing that when you start talking about networking, our guys are, are more hesitant, and I was as well. I mean, I'm still probably doing it not to the extent that I should. And you start to get more and more comfortable years after you've been out, as, you, as you're aware of as well. Well, we're talking about earlier high-stress situations. You've got to consider this as one of those opportunities. I mean, you're going to be placed in a very highly stressful situation. So if you don't go in 
well-coached, well-prepared as you're describing and understanding that you're going to be placed into potentially a stressful situation with measurable, quantifiable, not qualitative, but quantitative results that back up everything you're saying in a way that describes it, that they can understand it in a way in which they could see you uh, of a manufacturing line, leading individuals. They can see you in, in the private sector, corporate space, in an office setting in which you're driving a financial team towards metrics of a project. You're now describing things in their language. But a lot of these guys have actually done and gals have actually done this in their military career. They just don't know how to make those types of translations. Yeah, absolutely. In the in the private sector, everyone is in sales. You're either selling yourself or you're selling a product, but you're always selling. Yes. So I think that so in the military, I, I wasn't doing a lot of sales. There's some leaders that are selling, but you're everyone in the private sector is doing sales. You're either selling yourself or you're selling a product. I did zero sales whatsoever. On a, on a Green Beret team, on an ODA, as a communications expert, we, I didn't sell anything. I did my job and I did some development for the team, but I wasn't having to proposition anything in, in terms of selling. And when you when you pivot to the private sector, you're selling yourself daily. No doubt about it. And I mean, in everything that you do, like you said, when you're out there leading a, and you actually get the job I'm talking about, and you're out there leading teams, um, you're out there performing and everything, you better be able to sell yourself, even though you try to be humble, not an individual to boast a whole lot. Don't always talk about what it is that you did in accomplishments. But if you don't do that on a constant basis, you will get passed up. And quite frankly, you could actually lose your job. I mean, we get uh, reviewed out there on the outside, just like you do in the inside. You don't get an OER and NC. OER, uh, but you get a, a performance review at the end of the year uh, and sometimes in the middle of the year that's going to be evaluating you as a manager, as a leader, as an individual, and what value it is that you're bringing to the organization. If it doesn't stack up against your peer group, you're gone. That can find somebody who's going to be just as dynamic, so, so important. Um, I, if for individuals that are out there wanting to learn more about Elite Meat since we brought it up, how is it they can learn more about that? Yeah, so Elite Meat, we've got a website. It's E-L-I-T-E-M-E-E-T, um, like Elite Veterans Meetup. Uh, you can go to EliteMeat.com. You can see us on Instagram. We have a LinkedIn page as well. I've got a Facebook page that's not as robust. Um, we're kind of all over the place, to be honest with you. I think the website is pretty accurate for the most part. We've got an events page as well. That's typically how we run our, all of our events. But if you wanted to see more of Elite Meat, it would be LinkedIn and Instagram heavily. Zach, I appreciate you coming on the show, man, and uh, telling about your background, your story, and giving some great words of wisdom, and wish you nothing but continued success there with Elite Meat and everything you guys are doing. I appreciate it, Robert. Listen, a pleasure and honestly an honor to be on here. I think you guys have a great movement. Everything that you're doing is completely in line with who I am as a person, so if there's anything I can do to ever assist you guys, feel free to reach out. Let me know if you want me to connect you with anybody or anything like that that you see would be valuable for you guys. Would love to do it. Appreciate it, Zach. Have a great one. Absolutely enjoy it.